With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. What is going on? And I mean that in a very global way. I feel like the media is so biased. It doesn't matter where you look. And I know this from having been involved in the media myself. You're only going to see the surface of the news. You're not going to see any real analysis that helps you figure out what's really going on. So I called my friend Ian Bremer. I don't know how to describe what he does, but let's just say he advises huge entities, countries, whatever, on basically what's going on in the world. So I figure instead of spending his huge consulting fee to figure out what's happening, I would just have him on the podcast and ask him. So here's Ian Bremer, and we're going to talk about the election. We're going to talk about the pandemic. We're going to talk about China and Africa and what the possible worst case and maybe some best case scenarios are for the next one month, three months, six months, and the year. And he answers all my questions about what's going on in the world. And I'll bet some of those will be your questions as well. So enjoy. And here's Ian Bremer. That was such a weird thing, which I would say today is the first day that nobody has really bothered me about it. I mean, not, I mean, everybody's talking about it still, but not, no one's, no one's harassed me. It's just because it was, it was the best turn of phrase in the entire piece. That's why, you know, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's also the, the most buzz LinkedIn has probably gotten in five years. So there's yeah. that too. I mean, Se- <laughs> Seinfeld was trending on Twitter. It's probably the first time he's ever trended on Twitter. Because he's never written, apparently he's never written an article before in his entire life. Like that was the first art opinion piece he's ever written. Yeah. And it was all to trash me. So. Yeah. I know. I think it's cool. Yeah. I think it's really cool. Actually, I'm sure you, you think it's cool. Well, I did, but then I had so much like hate articles that kind of followed him. Everybody thought they were safe because he wrote something. And so it was just, it got frustrating for a little bit, but then I got over it. So, yeah. And it's funny. I'll tell you something really funny. So I don't know if you remember, I, um, when I, I made up this, uh, when Trump was in Tokyo a couple of years ago, I, I had this completely satirical quote saying that Trump said that, uh, Kim Jong-un is much smarter than sleepy Joe Biden. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, it was obviously meant to be satirical, but some people took it seriously, like some congressmen and shit. 
And, uh, and then President Trump came after me, which I thought was hilarious until I had two days of everyone and their mother coming after me. And the reason I'm mentioning it right now is because literally today he came out publicly and said that Kim Jong-un is actually a lot smarter than sleepy Joe Biden. I'm like, what the fuck, man? That's so funny. You should uh, you should retweet your original thing and just say you no, called it. My, my people would not be happy about that. So I'm going to choose not to do that. I don't know. I think that's, you could claim prophecy now. You, I know, you called I know, it. I know, um, I know. When people were going after you, did they like threaten you? Did they say? Oh, sure. I mean, there was like all sorts of random, violent, anonymous death threats. I, I don't care about that. It was more that I just, you know, I run a firm. And so my people were disappointed that I was like causing something that could upset some of the clients. So I just felt bad that I let my people down. You well, know? well, but it went, again, it went away a week later. So it wasn't a big deal. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about your firm. So it's, it's G zero or Eurasia or there. So Eurasia group is the firm I started back in 98. We've got a couple hundred people and it's a political science company. So we do analysis on what's happening politically all over the world for companies and banks and whatnot, got about a thousand clients. And then I set up a media company called G Zero World three years ago. And that is, you know, a television show and a podcast and a production studio and other stuff. That's great. And now we're starting an events company. And so it's all this stuff that's aligned around, you know, a core platform that tries to understand how the world works. So let's 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 talk about how the world's working. So first off, the Eurasia business, how did it do during the pandemic? Probably people more anxious than ever to find out what's next. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, you know, from from that perspective, I mean, it's it's obviously not fun to have all of your people uh you know, working from home. I mean, so you're dealing with not only are they not, you know, you're not getting any of the serendipitous connections from a bunch of creatives that need to work together that you normally would, and you're not creating, you know, and you can't travel around the world. So how how hard is it to kick the tires of what's going on in China or Nigeria right now, given that? Um, and and you're also not building your just general network. So there's a, there's a lot of downside, but in terms of the relevance of our organization to the people that need it, it's never in my life been so consistently high. I mean, you know, in brief spurts, 2008 financial crisis and the teeth of that, um, 1998 Russia crisis, 9-11. But I mean, here you're just talking about, you know, months and months and months where literally everything macro around the world is in play. Uh, where, you know, you just are wondering, you know, how how the American institutions are going to come out of this. What's the nature of the U.S.-China relationship? Are we heading towards Cold War? You know, I, I, what about a financial crisis in the developing world? How do you pay for the trillions and trillions required structural inequality, social contract? I mean, there's there's nothing you can, there's the surfeit of headlines that are fundamentally important to pretty much every corner of the world. You've just never seen such a saturation of that in my lifetime. And and do you think that, how much of that is, and, and by the way, I'm, you know, I know probably everyone says this, but I really am politically neutral. Like I actually am not for Biden. I am not a Trump person. I'm kind of wait, holding my fingers and hoping the world's still alive in 2024. I'm I'm really hoping for a good presidential election in 2024. That's where I keep aiming my eyes. But what I'm concerned about is 
And you pointed out in some of your articles on, on G0, a lot of the reactions to everything seems politicized. And, and, and by that, I think the, the, the biggest example, and again, this is, doesn't matter what your political beliefs are or what your medical beliefs are, but the fact that if you believe in higher taxes, you also were against hydroxychloroquine, all 50 million people had that correlation. And if you were for lower taxes, you were for hydroxychloroquine and all 50 million people believe the same two things. That doesn't make any sense statistically. So there must be politicization happening. So what I wonder is how much of the anxiety in the world is politicized and how much is real? I think uh, not only is a lot of anxiety politicized, but the actual results that we're seeing in your ability to respond effectively to coronavirus is in part seriously degraded by that very politicization. I mean, how many people are gonna be willing to take a vaccine that works when we have it? Um, if number one, Trump is pushing that in a politicized way so that it can be announced before the election. That's going to turn off a lot of people that otherwise would believe in that vaccine. What about all the people on the other side that now believe that the numbers have been wildly exaggerated to undermine Trump? I mean, these things make it much harder to respond to coronavirus. You wanna look at the places that have done a good job. It's not if they're left-wing or right-wing governments. It's not if they're even authoritarian or democratic. I mean, Vietnam did a really good job. So did Germany, right? It's more about whether the leaders took it seriously and didn't politicize it, whether they let the experts actually do the leading. And by the way, the experts can change their minds over time. There's a lot of stuff we didn't know about coronavirus six months ago that we now know, which make me much more optimistic right. about the future. Uh, but unfortunately, the politicization, the incredible polarization, both inside our countries, so you don't get a rally around the flag effect to believe more in your leader the way you did after 9-11. I mean, Bush's approval was 92%. Uh, six months after the pandemic, Trump's approval ratings are exactly what they were before the pandemic. That's that's not good, right? I mean, that, that implies that the country is a little broken in that regard, but it's not just inside our country, it's globally too. And the US-China relationship has gotten a lot worse because of coronavirus at the very time that we really need to be working together to ensure uh, efficient distribution of, of PPE, um, to ensure uh, that vaccines are developed quickly and distributed as broadly and quickly as possible. So right now there's, I don't know how many vaccine trials are in progress, but there's quite a few that are close to the finish line. Like I've heard from different groups that are very positive about how they think they're doing. And, you know, the, the phase three trials are going very quickly. Uh, yeah. You know, they're being ramped up by the FDA. What do you think when the, it, let's say there's a vaccine, let's even say early next year. Do you think given that not everyone's going to take it and given that it's not going to work for everyone, do you think it'll be enough to, to start riding the ship? Well, uh, the bad news uh, is that it's gonna take a long time to produce enough of this vaccine, especially because all of the vaccines that are in phase three right now require at least one booster shot to be effective, which means you need twice as much production, uh, which takes twice as much time and the distribution is harder. So, I mean, you've got that 
first of all. And then you have the fact there are a lot of already anti-vaxxers, particularly in the U.S. and France. Um, and you have the politicization making it harder. But, um, but so that's the bad news. It's going to take time uh, before you get to a place where we feel like we've really turned the, the curve on the vaccine. And even in, when you talk about vaccines and flu viruses, they, they don't work 100% of the time. They work 50%, 60% of the time, and, and they reduce uh, the, the symptoms that you have, but they don't end the symptoms that you have. And a lot of people that are older and have comorbidities aren't necessarily going to suddenly change their behavior on the back of that. But, but I am much more optimistic already on the back of the fact that we have far better treatment than we did six months ago. We've got, we know high flow oxygen works really well and keeps a lot of people off of ventilators. You remember four months ago, we thought we were gonna die because we didn't have enough ventilators. Now it turns out we don't need that many ventilators. And that's, lit that's literally because our science has improved. Um, we've got steroid treatments that are helping get people out of the hospital more quickly that we didn't have before. We, will, we also have cheap anti-gen tests, cost $10 a whack. You can find, you can get results very quickly uh, in less than an hour and with pretty high confidence, which allows, will allow people to get into a university or a school or a place of work or on a plane or in a conference and know that everyone that is inside that bubble will, for the purposes of that event, that time, uh, will be safe. Um, I, I think that there's a proliferation of all sorts of things like that that already make me feel very differently about the next 12 months than I did back in February. So so what about, though, what's going on with the relationship of, between the pandemic and the economy? Obviously, without the pandemic, without COVID, if you just say, hey, shut down the world economy for six months, Everyone would say, what are you talking about? That would be economic suicide and collapse. There would be a massive depression. There would be tens of millions around the world, maybe even more, would lose their jobs and livelihoods and homes. And yet we've done it because there was a pandemic. We done it. We we did this shutdown with good intentions. Where are we now? When is it when do you feel it's too much? If you were if you were a world leader of a country in a lockdown, when would you say, okay, now enough's enough, I'm opening the economy? Well, it depends on the country. I mean, in Sweden, it was a lot easier for them to have much fewer restrictions on the economy because um, a lot of people already work from home. They have an enormous number of people that live by themselves. So on those two attributes, they were better insulated from a disease like coronavirus than any other advanced industrial economy. Um, they also are in much better health than we are in the United States. Mm -hmm. Far fewer existing comorbidities, not a lot of morbidly obese Swedes. So you could, you could keep the economy open in Sweden and have a lot fewer people die or even be hospitalized than you could take the same steps in the United States or in Mexico, for example. So if I'm leading Sweden, that, that, better, that better impact my decision. I mean, if I look at sub-Saharan Africa or India, uh, leaders in those countries, with the exception of South Africa to a degree, are basically saying we're going to live with the virus. We don't have the money to pay people to stay at home, uh, right? They're just too poor to do that. And, and further, we can't really socially distance people because they live in conditions that don't allow that. 
um, their jobs aren't really uh, allowed to be, they're not knowledge economy jobs for the vast majority of the population. And also critically, the populations are very young. So the number of people that are gonna get hospitalized and die vastly lower than in the United States or in Europe. That's the right decision for them. Right. In part, it's because human life literally is cheaper in those countries and we wish that were not the case, but it is. And their leaders need to act knowing that reality. But you know, in the United States, the lockdowns that we took six months ago in part were because we were concerned that our hospitals were gonna get overwhelmed like they were in North and Italy. Remember, in North and Italy at the beginning, they told everyone with a symptom, go to the hospital, get checked out because they had really robust hospitals in Lombardy and Milan, that sort of thing. And within a month, you had all of these people in the hospital, frontline medical workers that were getting sick and dying. And as a consequence, they had to triage their patients and mortality rates went through the roof. Now, we didn't want that to happen in the United States. So we really needed to lock everyone down, especially in areas where there was significant spread and we didn't have our testing up to snuff in the first few months. That was our biggest mistake in my view. Trump's biggest mistake was not taking testing seriously early. And our early test kits didn't work and we didn't get test kits that did work from Germany, for example, which we could have done. That was his big mistake. But we needed to lock down not to end coronavirus, but to give us enough time to stockpile PPE, to build resilience in hospitals, so that as the caseload did go up, um, we wouldn't have a whole bunch of people die. And you know, I think that now, six months later, if we can get people paying attention to basic directions, like when and where they should wear masks and socially distance, I think we can do a much better job in opening the economy. And I, and I think that six months ago, the directives for much of rural America should have been different at that point than they were in a lot of our urban centers. So I don't think, I think the, the general parameters are consistent across the board, but the way you apply and weight those are gonna be vastly different in different places because they have different conditions. Yeah, I mean, I hope in, uh, let's say there's a future pandemic or a future something, I hope the it doesn't become a one size fits all policy again. Like, yes, there were cities where there was a danger of hospitals getting overrun and we needed to so-called flatten the curve, but not some states had no danger at all of that and probably could have kept open largely. But, you know, to your point, I guess we didn't know, we learned. Um, you know, let's say the, the peak in the U.S. of the pandemic was probably was sometime in mid-April, give or take a week. Uh, do you think even then we should have maybe started relaxing things, you know, when it was clear it, it was going to peak and, and go down for a while? Um, I, I think that uh, the, there have been several peaks in the United States. That April, we're talking about the peak for really the New York City metropolitan area and the Northeast um, the peak in That's the, the only south. area I care about. I get. No, I know. We heard. We've heard that. We've heard that. That's a different <laughs> conversation. But I mean, then you had a peak in the south, um, and uh, and and uh, in the uh, in the southwest and California, Southern California, and 
their shutdown periods absolutely should have been different um, than those in the Northeast. And now we're seeing some of the Midwest as having the highest levels of infection rate that they had before. But they they have the fortune, the good fortune of already having the improved knowledge and improved treatment and improved direction that, frankly, New York City did not when this first hit us as badly um, as it did. And yes, I mean, that that has to play out in. So I'm someone who firmly believes that we need to be listening to the scientists. Like if you want to understand what to do about coronavirus, you have to have epidemiologists that know their stuff in every meeting. But when you then want to say, okay, now what do we do politically in the country in terms of lockdowns? You can't just talk to epidemiologists because then you'll have no idea about the economic impact of those lockdowns. So you need to talk to really good economists too. You need to talk to people that understand the implications of those lockdowns on people's well-being and their mental health and their actual, their physical health too. Um, and and I, I think that in a country that is as divided as the United States, where the vast majority of Republicans today say law and order is their primary concern, and the vast majority of Democrats say the pandemic is their primary concern, and we're in an election cycle with a president who himself has one power on the back of being maximally divisive as opposed to a unifier. I mean, unfortunately, the coincidence of those things make it much harder to respond to coronavirus effectively because we're a country that should be doing better than pretty much any democracy. We're wealthier, right? And we have better scientists and we have an enormous amount of resource in dealing with pandemics. And we've really failed. And we failed, I would say, mostly because of the division, because of how politicized we have treated this crisis, uh, both the political parties and the media, and sure, I mean, first and foremost, the president, because he's in charge. And so ultimately it's on his watch. But, you know, you wish it was just on that. It'd make it so much easier. It's so much deeper than that. Yeah, like what what were, what were are some of the things that you feel the media did that they shouldn't have? What are some of the things you think the Democrats and the Republicans did that you think they shouldn't have? Like, how is each party to blame? Well, I mean, in New York. Not to, uh, not to th throw random blame around, but I'm just thinking yeah. in terms of the future, I don't want to be in this situation again. So, uh, I, and I mentioned that I think the Trump's biggest mistake um, at the beginning was on testing. Uh, that was that was uh, you know if the if the Chinese original sin was the cover up for four weeks, which allowed five hundred thousand Chinese from Wuhan to travel all over the world and spread the virus, and that's why this happened. The American original sin was we knew this was going on for weeks. I mean, from mid January, and we basically were asleep for two months. Even when it was hitting Europe, we had two weeks and we just didn't get our arms around the testing. Though we did shut down travel from China, which by the way, the South Koreans and Japanese uh, concerned about antagonizing the Chinese did not do that. And that hurt them, right? In a way that for the United States, we actually handled that travel better. Uh, and that was Trump's decision, uh, by the way. Um, I think that uh, there were big mistakes early on uh, that uh, the governors uh, it, here in New York, uh, certainly in terms of uh, wanting to not have the hospitals get overwhelmed. So they made the, the old age homes, the assisted living facilities, made them take anybody that was symptomatic and that let them spread like wildfire among the populations that were most vulnerable. They didn't isolate, they didn't quarantine, 
and almost 50% of your deaths in the New York metro area came because of that decision. That's a, that's a real mistake. And then you had a number of Republican governors in the early days, not all, not Ohio, for example, who did, DeWine did a good job, but certainly Georgia, uh, Kemp, certainly DeSantis um, in Florida, um, who were themselves uh, saying this is not a big deal and we can stay open. And they weren't taking it seriously enough in the early days. They weren't also getting testing ramped up and and they weren't getting people. I mean, it's not just about shutting down your economy. It's more about shutting the places where you're going to get the massive amounts of spread. And they weren't doing that. They weren't doing that with the bars and nightclubs and the indoor uh, restaurants. And it would have been so easy to do in places where the weather at that point was quite temperate, easy to be outside. And they didn't. Um, and that that led to a lot of spread there. And And the media you know, I mean, was all over coronavirus until George Floyd. And then as soon as George Floyd hit, suddenly it was all George Floyd and they're covering the protests with large numbers of people congregating, many of whom in the early days weren't wearing masks and they weren't talking about it. And that's not okay because then it makes you think, well, it's, oh, you need to be locked down. You need to wear a mask, except when it's about Black Lives Matter. No, not at all. And that doesn't mean I don't care about George Floyd or social justice, but you have to recognize like the most important story in the U.S. this year is coronavirus. And that's been true every goddamn day. It's true now. And it was true the day that George Floyd was murdered. And it was true in March and April. And the media has not treated it that way. They politicized this on both sides. And so I, I feel this is this is almost systemically, to use the word, almost systemically a problem now in the media. Like you look at this entire year, it's been every every day, it, the media makes it seem as if it's there's only one issue this year, but it, that issue changes every day. So every January day. 1st, it was Australian wildfires. Like the, an entire continent was on fire. And then I bet you nobody even listening to this, I don't know, knows when the last fire ended in Australia. They did end. I don't know if it was March or May, but I, it was it was in one of those M's. But uh, that, and then January second, we had Suleimani and World War Three, and then nobody really knows what happened with that. And then there was impeachment and whatever, and then uh, COVID, uh, George Floyd. Now we got climate change in the news, and there's nothing else in the news like like these uh, peace agreements, whether it's in you know, the old Yugoslavia or Israel, you know, in the Middle East. I don't, those aren't in the news, for instance. Yeah, I mean, we've gone, the media's gone full spinal tap, right? Everything goes to 11 all the time. And, and you can sense the palpable disappointment when you've got a huge crisis and it's starting to peter out and they're just trying to milk it for more. It's like, oh, come on, you can't tell me that hurricane is really not gonna be. It's like, it's not gonna hit full bore. And I, I get it, that's the business model. And of course, it's even worse on social media than it is on cable news, but it's a serious problem. I mean, just recently we have the Abraham Accord signed um, in the White House, and it's the first deal between Israeli and Arab governments in 25 years um, in, uh, in the White House. And that's a pretty big deal between America's top allies in the region. And, and I wrote about it, and I, I, I gave plaudits to the president for facilitating it. Um, and, you know, you can just imagine how those people that follow me, um, who like what I have to say, but only when it checks their boxes, think I'm somehow being anti-patriotic 
in daring to say that Trump has had a success in something. And that, that's insane. I mean, I look, I, I happen, unlike you, I mean, I, I do think that Trump is the most incapable, least fit president in my lifetime. And I will not support him come November. And it's not because I love Biden. I just honestly, that is my analytic view. I'm not a member of a political party. But that doesn't doesn't stop me from objectively supporting what he's doing when it's good for the country or it's good for the world. And those things happen all the time in the same way that, you know, people have different views on tax and on social issues. And just as you brought up earlier. So I think we have a real problem that we're no longer willing to see people in a nuanced and rich way. And, and the and coronavirus makes it so much worse because we're not seeing people in person anymore. We're seeing people mostly through our devices, through technology. And when that experience happens, when you're not just bowling alone, as Robert Putnam used to say, but you're doing everything alone, um, then suddenly everyone becomes an archetype of the thing that's most important to you. And that's a disaster for our country. It's a disaster for civil society. Yeah, because look at, you know, obviously George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, this is an important issue uh, and getting to the roots of it has always been important. But now these protests, which led to, there, there is, despite what a lot of people say, uh, there is some disconnect between the peaceful protests and the rioting. There's a lot of evidence that there's multiple groups involved here, but it's not just in the U.S. There's protests right now in pretty much every country in the world, it seems. Like there's protests all over. What's going on worldwide? Is this is this just because we've all been locked down for a few months or is are things kind of breaking down everywhere? Well, I mean, you know, Lebanon, you have massive economic collapse, currency falling through the floor, huge corruption, and then you have an explosion that levels a decent piece of Beirut. If I were Lebanese, I'd be pretty pissed off at that point. Belarus, you've had decades of kleptocratic dictatorship and one of the worst leaders to mishandle coronavirus, saying that it's fake, it's a hoax, you can cure it by going to the sauna and drinking vodka. And then he steals the election, says he has 80%. The Belarusians are like, that's it, enough. We're out on the streets. So, I mean, there is an actual specific uh, Germany, to each as, of these places. As an example also though. Where? Germany, those protests. Uh, those were small protests in the grand scheme of things. I mean, they were mishandled and they almost got into the Reichstag. But, but frankly, I mean, I, one of the most interesting things about Coronavirus is Angela Merkel is her approval rates are almost eighty percent right now. She she's actually rebuilt her legacy before coronavirus. She couldn't ensure that her own preferred successor would be able to run her party, the former defense minister Angela Kramp Karrenbauer, because you remember when she said we'll let all these Syrian refugees in. That was enormously unpopular. She's done a singularly good job in Europe in responding to coronavirus, not just for Germany, but also economically for all of Europe in driving real redistribution and a real European budget that no one else could have done and gotten unanimous support from all 27 European Union countries. Mm. Not as, you know, because one veto and you're dead there. So that's actually, Germany feels pretty good. Japan, you don't see big demonstrations in Japan. It's one of the world's largest economy, third largest economy in the world. Um, and uh, they're having a transition right now with Prime Minister Abe stepping down for health 
reasons and a new prime minister that he basically has picked, Mr. Suga, the former chief cabinet secretary, one with 70% of the vote in his party. And it's a very uh, peaceful, stable transition. So I would take issue with the idea that everything's on fire, except you know, that uh, if you watch the media, it looks like everything is on fire. I mean, it looks like all of Portland is a hellscape, but most of Portland is actually fine. And of course, people were saying the same thing, as you know, um, about our own New York City. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. 
So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs HIMS. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. New York City, by the way, I wasn't complaining about recent crime events, and obviously oh, New York City crime is up, but more just the 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 fact that structurally the tax revenues are going to go way down next year and deficits are going to spike up, and I don't know how they solve that. Like that's a, it seems like a difficult problem to solve. I mean, I, because you wrote that piece, and I I actually before Jerry wrote about you. Um, I, I, I actually engaged on it, and I don't often because I thought it was provocative and interesting. I'll tell you why I have a, a more optimistic view than you yeah. do. And in some ways, it's, it comes from a more pessimistic global view, which is that coming out of coronavirus, I see overwhelmingly a K-shaped recovery. In other words, that the wealthiest countries do the best because we dominate high tech, and the wealthiest people in the wealthiest countries do the best because they have knowledge economy capacity, they can move with ease, they can have their kids taken care of in ways that are safe and still get educated, all of this stuff. So I think that structural inequality is gonna get greater on the back of coronavirus. And I think that once it becomes safe to interact easily with each other once again, those wealthy people will want to go back to their intellectual and social playgrounds where they can find the people that are best 
for their cohort. And for the same reason that I think Harvard is going to do very well, because if you can get your kid into Harvard, that kid is set up forever. I also think you're going to want, as a young adult, as an older person, to have the access to the best restaurants, the best mines, the best everything that you find in truly global cities. And by the way, there aren't many truly global cities left. With Brexit, London is becoming considerably less attractive as a global city. With China and the new security law, Hong Kong is becoming considerably less attractive as a global city. New, I think New York City, it's, it's, it's comparative attraction in that context. And I'm not taking away of any of the things that you're saying about the, the challenges of economically. I hope you're right. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of people already have moved out. And by that, I mean, they've actually bought houses in other places. And that, that was kind of the initial trend that made me look further. And then also it's just seeing all the restaurants go out of business and finding out the data on that. It just seemed that enough things were happening simultaneously that, and combined with de Blasio needing, you know, 5 billion in a week to keep 22,000 employees on, there just seemed to be too much happening that could spiral out of control. Yeah, except, except that New York is so expensive and so large. And if prices come down, I think a lot of people that had been priced out of it will want to be in. Um, and you're right that a lot of restaurants have closed, but you know the ability, the US is really good at, at bankruptcy and also restarting new companies. We're the best in the world at restarting new companies. And I suspect those entrepreneurs are gonna come right back as soon as they have the opportunity. And there'll be a lot of money on the sidelines that'll wanna bankrupt, that, that will wanna bankroll great chefs with great ideas, um, just as they have historically. I mean, the numbers right now are horrible. I completely agree and it breaks my heart to see so many of my favorite neighborhood places go out of business, you know? Yeah. But the people that are really suffering, of course, are not the people that own the businesses. The people that are really suffering are the ones that don't have jobs and are about to see um, the, the money that they were getting from unemployment go away. And that, that's, that's where this election is really hurting. You really wanna talk about the problems. I mean, Pelosi and Mnuchin, you know, not being able to deal um, Pelosi hasn't spoken with Trump. Trump hasn't spoken with Pelosi in a year. And, and, and Trump refuses to let the, force the Republicans to spend money to come to cooperation. And, and Pelosi refuses to give them a smaller number to make it seem like a win. And so it's all playing politics for November. And who gets hurt? Who's in the crossfire? These poor bastards that always get hurt. And they're the reason why so many people are just sick of the kleptocracy in, and the rigged U.S. system that goes against them. Right, and I I agree. This this is sort of on, on both sides. It feels like if any one side were to be reasonable, they could get a stimulus package and people desperately need it. But uh, uh, again, like, do you think people realize that? Do you think the average American voter realizes they've been screwed by all this polarization and politicization and you know, everything's become twisted. So tens of millions of people are, are hungry right now. You know, I, I don't think they necessarily understand it in the urbane cosmopolitan way that you and I are discussing it. But I think they understand it in a very deep and, and authentic way, uh, in the same way that my family did when I grew up in the projects in Chelsea, Massachusetts. These were people that fundamentally believed that leaders were lying to them. Hmm that they pretended to want to do something for them that trickle down was never gonna really trickle down and they didn't care. 
Uh, and so if, if my mom didn't beg and cheat and steal for her two kids, we were never going to make it. We weren't going to get out of the projects. And I think a lot of people understand that. I think that's why Bernie Sanders has done so well, but it's also why Trump won. And you can say, well, Trump is a liar and he doesn't do anything and he supports the swamp. But Trump also drives the establishment crazy. He makes the media so angry. He makes the Democrats so angry. He makes Mitt Romney so angry. And I think that if you're one of these people that has just been screwed for decades, even the fact that Trump isn't necessarily helping you, but he's a Confederate because he's the enemy of your enemy. And that and that is that's fraternal. That's mm. your brother. Mm. Right. And when things get really bad, you take up a fight like that. So, yeah, I think they do understand that at some fundamental and deep level that the representative democracy, the American dream that we want to believe in and that, you know, frankly, our grandfathers and even our grandmothers did believe in um, doesn't exist the way it used to and doesn't exist the way we pretend that it does right now. Why do you think that is? Do you think um, there is this too much focus on breaking down what the American identity is rather than being inclusive? You know, the kind of rise of, of let's say, intersectionalism with activism, you know, uh, has, you know, basically created every single group and subgroup and sub subgroup has made them into activists, all fighting each other and fighting, you know, the government. Um, I think that some of it is backlash from free trade that made a lot of people really wealthy, but took away a lot of manufacturing jobs because they were cheaper in other countries, China, India, even Mexico. But we didn't actually invest in the places that lost all those jobs and had those factories shut down. I think that's now speeding up with technology and automation and deep learning with big data. I mean, you know, Amazon may be hiring 100,000 people, but they don't need the kind of labor um, that Walmart does. Um, and, you know, uh, Google doesn't need the kind of labor that AT&T did. Um, and that's displacing a lot more people. But we haven't invested in suitable universal lifetime education to get people able to reskill themselves, to train themselves to have these sorts of jobs. Um, we don't have a social contract that works for a gig economy. Um, you know, I think that we've allowed big money uh, to regulate itself to too great a degree. So it's not just about taxation. It's more about special interests that pay a lot of money into obscenely expensive um, elections in every district in the country to make sure that the laws that are passed benefit them. It's also why we're way behind the Europeans on climate, for example, because we don't have fair arbiters among our regulators. We instead have regulators that have largely been captured by special interests. And by the way, I'm not just talking about big pharma and big finance and big oil. I'm also talking about teachers unions and trial lawyers. This is a problem on the left too. And it, it, in, in all these cases, it, it is uh, organized money that subverts the interest of the average schmo. And then, you know, put on top of that, um, the reality of structural racism and structural sexism that has led to Me Too and Black Lives Matter. But this isn't stuff that, that women and blacks weren't saying 20, 30, 40 years ago. It's just that now some more people are starting to listen to them. Um, but those issues really exist. 
So look, I love this country and I can't imagine being anywhere else. And my grandmother, you know, left genocide and to fought with her family um, as an Armenian um, to, to come here to Ellis Island. I mean, my God, I, I, I never would have accomplished a hundredth of what I have if it wasn't for her decision to come to the United States. But I also think for most people in the country now, unless you're born into a family that has access to gatekeepers, you're probably not gonna make it. And, and I, I, I think that that's a failing, um, a structural failing that has occurred, that has grown incrementally over many decades, but that desperately now needs to be addressed. And is there, is, is, are there solutions? Of course there are solutions. Um, but but I mean, solutions that are, are you, you could see a pathway towards implementing these solutions without it being too political too quickly. Well, I mean, you know, I, I look at the anger over policing and I see that, you know, what they tried in Trenton with community policing actually made a difference. And I think that with the obscenities of these videos that we've seen of all of this police violence, you're gonna see maybe not national legislation that fixes it, but you'll see a lot of grassroots efforts to get at these problems in an organic way that matters. Remember when Trump said, we're leaving the Paris climate deal, most governors and many of the, of the most important mayors in the country and a lot of CEOs said, actually, we're gonna stick with the Paris climate deal. In fact, we can do better than that. And I think that, you know, you're not going to see universal basic income across the country, but you are going to see more experiments in for different companies providing mm -hmm. universal education for people that work in those companies and for their families, because they know that they have to, or it's not going to be sustainable in the communities that they operate. So I do think that step by step, these aren't sexy, big, this isn't like the New Deal under FDR but it actually does move the needle. The problem is that with the pandemic, I think it's gonna get worse before it gets better because the pandemic is a really big hit to the part of the country that can least afford it. Um, and it's gonna take us a while to dig out of that. Yeah, and what do you think is a worst case scenario? So like, it sort of seems 50 days from today is the election. We know no one is gonna be declared a winner on November 3rd, probably not November 4th, maybe not November 5th, could be maybe not November 6th through 15th. Not that I'm being negative, but again, for the first election that I can remember, there's a path to really ridiculous worst case scenarios. That's a greater than 1% chance. So there's actually an easy way to think about this. Um, when 9-11 hit, the whole country rallied around George W. And the world, rallied around the United States. Even the Russians provided support, gave us access to those bases so we could hit Afghanistan, have the logistics. 2008, country rallied around Bush and Obama. And, and they the, worked together. And, Remember, they that's right. after Congress didn't pass the first uh, bailout package, it was McCain was sort of quiet in the room and it was yep. Obama and Bush talking to congressional leaders. That actually works. really impressed me about Obama right then. Absolutely. And, and, and by, and, and Bush too. And, and I think that we created the G20 and the Europeans worked well with the U S you remember that big meeting, April, 2009 in London and the Chinese were, you know, at least not unconstructive and, and generally participated well in the communique that was structured, try to create more confidence, avoid a depression. 
So we really didn't want a pandemic to hit when the U.S. was so divided and Trump was president going into an election cycle, right? So the reason why this feels so much worse in the U.S. right now is because it was a really bad time for a crisis. It's not because this pandemic is objectively so incredibly horrible. Other countries have responded much better, but it was a really bad time for us to deal with this crisis. So what is the worst case scenario in the next few months? It's pretty simple. The worst case scenario is we have an election on November 3rd. It is maximally contested and seen as delegitimized for weeks or months. And in the middle of that, when we still don't know who is governing the country, there is another crisis either in the US or someplace else. So let's say, for example, the Chinese president decides to take that opportunity to make a serious move on Taiwan, or the Iranians have major dissent internally and, and they decide to close the Straits of Hormuz, or the Russians fully invade Belarus and, the Germ and, and, and also have little green men screwing around in the Baltic states where for Lithuania, for example, where the Belarusian opposition is, something like that, or there was a major terrorist act in the US. I mean, you know, you, you, know you, you play it out, but then you don't actually have legitimate governance in the United States to effectively respond, right? That's your worst case scenario. That's what we really don't want. So I was very disturbed the other day to see that the US ambassador to China is stepping down the first week of October. No, no, you've got to stay until January because this is the most dangerous period. Maybe that's for why he is tail risk. Down. Well, yeah, but no, but not if you're a decent human being, right? Yeah. I mean, like you, this is when you really see what people are made of. Is when the chips are down, are they going to actually act for their country as opposed to for their career? Hmm. Um, and we're not seeing a lot of the former, especially among political officials, right now. Yeah, and like like China is is a good example. Like, and I want to get back to the worst case scenario, but uh, you know, in the past few months, we've seen atrocities against the Uyghurs, the Muslim community in in China. You've seen Hong Kong just wiped out as a city, essentially, like it's it's just gone. And the U.S. really didn't, because we've been diverted by you know both the pandemic and the lockdown and the protests and so on. We just sort of let it happen. I really, I feel really disappointed about what we did with with China here. Yeah, I mean, we have actually um, now put sanctions against the most important Chinese state enterprise in Xinjiang, uh, which uh, really hurts them directly. And if if it's extensive, if it not just includes direct business with them, but actually indirect. Uh, business with them, that's going to affect a lot of U.S. corporations, multinational corporations around the world. So I, I actually think the Trump administration, and particularly Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, has been extremely hawkish in response to things like um, the Hong Kong national security law and the re rehabilitation camps slash concentration camps that have affected over a million Uyghurs uh, in northwest China. The problem is that President Trump does not care. Uh, he has zero interest in criticizing other countries on human rights, um, zero interest in leveraging American soft power and the fact that our values actually matter. I mean, to be fair, in part because he doesn't really believe or resemble or you know sort of demonstrate those values himself, but it's also just 
you know, his view is in that regard closer to Putin's, which is, you know, truth is a construct. Um, everyone's in it for themselves. This is all realpolitik, brass knuckle stuff. And he's a real estate guy. And in real estate, you try to, you know, rip the face off of some guy in a transaction, get the best deal, but you're not going to be involved in another deal with that person in all likelihood. So it's not an iterated game where in government, you know, actually long-term relations where you build trust really does matter. Trump's just, Trump's history doesn't actually give him an experience to understand the importance of that directly. Well, that's interesting. I wonder, I always think, what's the difference between Obama-ism and Trumpism? So I like thinking in terms of these isms because it removes the character of the person and you deal with, is there a consistent philosophy? And it seems like on foreign relations, Obamaism has this view that let's be friends with these other countries and through friendship and consensus, prosperity can be created. So that's one view. And then Trumpism is sort of like all these countries, let's just assume by default that they're all screwing us in some way. We're going to pull back. We're not going to, we're going to, we're not going to have anything. We're going to be isolationist and pull back in every possible way to, to regroup the economy, regroup our expenses, and then figure out how to move forward. Would you say that's a fair one sentence description of, of each ism in terms of foreign relations? Uh, for Obamaism, yes. I, I think that he is an institutionalist. He believes in multilateralism. Um, he doesn't want to use American power uh, very strongly. Um, and he really is a coalition builder, right? Um, and, and thinks that, you know, incrementalism is the way that you get things done internationally. Um, Trump is not an isolationist. That's where I disagree with you. I think Trump is a unilateralist, but he's not an isolationist. Number of troops of the U.S. in the Middle East right now, total number of troops, same as it was under Obama. Drone strikes under Trump, actually more drone strikes under Trump in the Middle East than there were under Obama. We got a new trade deal done. We improved NAFTA under Trump. We improved it with the Mexicans and the Canadians. That is not isolationism. This new deal um, in diplomatic normalization between the uh, Israelis, the UAE and Bahrain with more countries that will also sign up, that is not isolationism. But Trump does not care about um, diplomacy per se and he certainly thinks that America is constrained by multilateralism and long-term treaties. He sees the United States as the most powerful country in the world and, and thinks that what we want is to sit down individually with other countries that are weaker and use our power to improve the deal. Hmm. And, and he, I, I can show you many cases where he's done that. So, for example, in Mexico, um, the funny thing he says, well, they're going to build the wall and they're going to pay for it. The funny thing is they actually have done that. Just it's a different wall. It's not the wall on the southern border with Mexico. It's the southern border of Mexico stopping all of the illegal immigrants coming in because he warned the Mexicans. You may remember this. If you don't deal with your southern security, I am going to tariff you so high your head's going to spin. And the Mexican president, who is no friend of Trump, right? I mean, solidly left wing had before he became president had only traveled to, I think, Cuba and Venezuela before suddenly says, yes, sir, Mr. President because he knows it's gonna hurt his country because the US is a lot more wealthy. And within three months, the number of illegal immigrants coming through Mexico to the US goes down 50% and we don't put tariffs on. So that is a direct success because of Trump. But Trump's relations with people like Chancellor Merkel in Germany 
and President Macron in France have been so badly damaged, South Korean President Moon, because he just has no sense of interest in long-term commitments and obligations and tariffs and treaties and promises that have been made. Instead, it's all about my way or the highway, you give me more because I'm more powerful. And you know, a lot of these countries are led by narcissistic, powerful men. Not as powerful and narcissistic as Trump, but they also expect to have their ego stroked a little, to have their asses kissed a little, and they get their noses out of joint when Trump comes in and treats them like a peon. And, and they decide that they're not going to play ball. They're not going to be as nice to the Americans as they might otherwise. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you do get things from being a decent human being. People are more, you're not just a patsy. People will actually go out of their way more for you. It's not just a Hobbesian world out there. And, you know, I think the fact, I mean, I know you say you want to use Trumpism, but I kind of wish Trump had been raised better. You know, I kind of wish that he had some of the decency personally that would allow him the soft skills that someone who is as powerful as the American president really benefits when you show those off. You know, we have this rule as well. I mean, I've always viewed you never hit down. You can hit up, you never hit down. People that are less fortunate than you. Trump hits down all the time and it doesn't redound to our advantage. When you're in a position that you are as wealthy, as powerful as the United States, it, it really redounds to our benefit long-term to be more decent than we need to be. Right, so what's, so you mentioned the success of, of you know, both NAFTA and, and the stuff on the, on the border with the southern border of Mexico. What are, what's the failure of being a unilateralist? Like where, I understand the relationships have, have cost us, but where is it actually pragmatically cost us? Oh, well, I mean, you, you look at um, the difficulties um, around uh, getting the Europeans aligned with us on on uh, taxation uh, with tech firms or on trade. Those are much bigger fights than they need to be. Um, you look at uh, support for uh, aligning on 5G. You look at the Italians deciding to join the Belt and Road from China. I'm not sure they would have done that. Um, with a different president in place. But these are countries that are like, well, if it's all transactional, then what's in it for me? Let me figure a way to get what I want done. I think that, you know, it's, there's a, the, Turkey um, and uh, their, uh, their willingness to play up their own interest against the Americans um, in a bunch of areas, in the Eastern Mediterranean, for example, in Libya, in Syria, much more than I think they otherwise would have. Um, for, for again, for, for that reason. But for me, it's less about what these smaller countries are doing that's hurting the United States in the near term. It's, it's more, I mean, I think on balance, Trump gets more small wins than he suffers small losses with this approach. So if you were gonna weigh that up, you'd say there are more things you can point to that Trump has gotten other countries to do. The bigger problem is that these institutions the frameworks that the Americans created to benefit us, like the World Health Organization and the IMF and the World Trade Organization, they're actually eroding significantly in ways that will be hard to rebuild because not only the United States is saying that they're not important, but our allies are less committed to them as a consequence as well. 
And do we, you know, obviously this unilateralist thinking is very short-term to some extent. And you have on the opposite side, you have China, which is a very long-term thinker. What's what's up with China and the fact that they're building all the, these roads and infrastructure in Africa? Like what's what's their worldwide game plan with all this stuff? I can't, that's that, that one continent that play there is interesting to me, but I can't figure it out. Well, Belt and Road initially was a marketing scheme. I mean, the Chinese were investing in lots of poor countries around the world, in part because they were kept out of the wealthy countries, and in part because with U.S. sanctions, European sanctions, human rights violations, the rest. I mean, American companies can't invest in the DRC or Zimbabwe, but the Chinese can. So that's where they pick it up. And their country is 1.4 billion people. They're increasingly middle class and middle economy. That means that the need for a lot of cities and a lot of food and a lot of commodities, and they need to import them from someplace. So they're, they're doing all these deals in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, East and Central Europe and, and South America. And, and so someone in Xi Jinping's remit, and whoever it was is a frickin' genius, says, well, we've got all these deals. We don't call it anything. Let's call it something. So that was Belt and Road. Hmm. And, and Belt and Road, once you suddenly have it, it becomes a thing, even though it wasn't actually done with a strategy. It becomes like the Chinese Marshall Plan, uh, but the conditionality is much more commercial and much more what do we get as a quid pro quo in all of these bilateral relationships. Now, look, I would much rather, you would much rather the Americans build the infrastructure than the Chinese because it's more investment dollars, it's better political ties. But I'd rather the Chinese build the infrastructure than no one builds it because if you build a port in Sri Lanka, then you know everyone can use the port and we can export more stuff to Sri Lanka, they can export more stuff to us. It's easier to travel to Kenya if they have roads that work and airports that work. So our tourists will go on more safaris. I mean, those are objectively useful things to have happen. There are two problems. The first problem is that when the Chinese invest all of that money, they frequently want things in return that aren't just economic, they can also be political, they can be security oriented, that frequently disagree with the short and long-term interests of the US and the allies. The, the second problem is that frequently the conditionality can be very onerous from an economic perspective. So they default on their debt and then suddenly the Chinese own the port and that allows them to have a lot more direct control as we saw, for example, in Hamanboda with Sri Lanka. And the third problem is Belt and Road is increasingly not just about Belt and Road, it's increasingly about data. It's increasingly not a ge geographic manifestation. And data, if the Chinese provide a surveillance system as they have for Zimbabwe or for Pakistan, they get that data, we don't. They support that government and its authoritarian leanings. We have little influence. That's a problem. And because so there is what do they do with that data that, that we would like to do with it? Well, well, what are they gonna do with that data? Well, I mean, first, uh, you commercialize that data. Um, and so you make money off of, you know, the, the deep learning that occurs from having more data. You advance your own artificial intelligence capacity more than we do. And that creates stronger tech firms. And keep in mind that Amazon doesn't do business in China. Huawei is not doing business in the U.S. So it's not integrated. It's not globalized. We are truly, you know, in a technology cold war between the two. Um, but also 
you know, when the Chinese are providing surveillance systems to a country, they're much more willing to allow that country to use it on their people the way the Chinese use it on the Uyghurs, where the United States, we would hope, would not allow their private sector companies to do that. And when they do, when we find out, we get really upset about it, as has happened with Belarus, for example, very recently with a U.S. company that was involved in that to a degree. So, I mean, I think for those reasons, the tech side of Belt and Road is increasingly a place that we are going to be in confrontation with each other. So, okay, so back to the election and the worst case scenarios, November 15th comes around, December 1st comes around, the election is tied up in courts. Some states were closed, some states weren't. There's mail-in fraud on one side, there's voter suppression on the other side. Could courts keep this below the Supreme Court? Like, could a Republican or Democrat court keep it at a local level before, so it doesn't move up too quickly? No, I think I think that you there could be small cases that are frivolous that get knocked down that you can't actually appeal, but meaningful cases that would actually lead to a change in outcome that could affect the national election. I think will move expeditiously to be heard by the top court of the land. Absolutely. How, how does that happen legally? Like what if uh, I'm in the Minnesota Supreme Court and I'm the, the, the chief justice and I just say, ah, I'm, gonna and I'm not an American legal scholar. So, I mean, you can ask me about the international stuff. I, I can't give you that answer. There are a bunch of people that can. Um, you know, I've I, even asked the legal people. No one really can answer that for me, but that's okay. Oh, that I'm glad that I'm misery loves company from that perspective. Look, I, but I, I think the, the, the question is not just can we resolve these individual cases? It's, it's more because I think we can and I think that they will, if it, things that get to the Supreme Court will get resolved as they were in 2000 election. Yeah. The real question is even with a resolution, will the country accept the outcome? Will the losing candidate accept the outcome? In 2000, it wasn't a problem because Gore accepted the outcome. That became a legitimate election, whether you liked it or not. There are lots of reasons you go into it and say that wasn't a legitimate election, but it was a legitimate election because Gore said yes, and we moved on. And the Supreme Court was seen as not having really been devalued as an institution. This time around, it could be a different story. And, and you know, you know, it's not widely known, but uh, another contested election was 1960. So Nixick took Kennedy, I think, all the way up to the Supreme Court he conceded the night of the election, but still fought it all the way, you know, through January. So it's, there is some history of this and it's gotten like worse and worse each time. 1876 is the one I worry about, right? Yeah, and so, so 1876, Samuel Tilden, Rutherford B. Hayes, and then yeah. decided in a, in a, a paid off, a, a, you know, a bribery house situation. And so that could happen at the electoral level, right? You, you're, you, you don't have to have it's not necessarily the law to um, that the electors have to vote where they where the people voted them. Um, I think people have been trying to make that law, but it it hasn't happened. It's been untested in the courts, yeah. And so, I mean, it's conceivable that in states and swing states where you have um, a governor that is of one party and the legislature of the other, that they could actually return to Congress two different outcomes, one of which might be accepted by the Senate, one of which might be accepted by the by the House, and then you would be in 1876 territory because there would be no legal way. I mean, the Supreme Court can't vote on that because it's about internal congressional voting. It's not a separation of powers. So Congress would have to find a way 
to work it out. But again, my, my concern is not primarily about that. My, my concern is whether or not the losers of the election are going to be prepared and capable of accepting the outcome of something that will be much messier than 2000. And, le and let's say they're not, because it seems like they won't be. I mean, both sides, I mean, both sides have basically counseled their candidates to not concede ever. And, uh, you know, you could, you could see a range of outcomes ranging from secession. I mean, you, I could certainly see a, a state like Texas discussing seceding, which by the way, this sounds like a looter. Like if we were having this conversation a year ago, it would have been science fiction, but now it's a greater than 1% chance, which I don't think it has been since the civil war. Yeah, I mean, I, I see that they've been talking about it and, they, and you get when you have the polls, you get, you know, eight, 10 percent, whatever it is, supporting it. And of course, you know, that's that would certainly go up in this kind of an environment. The thing that again, the proximate thing that I'd be most concerned about is with this pandemic still raging and a time when you really need governance, you really need money to get out the door to people actually in that kind of an outcome you could fundamentally have a boycott of legislation and, you know, government shuts down. That's a really bad time for government to shut down. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I like, like you said, I do see a path where this could happen. And I don't, yeah. it's one of those things. I don't know how it gets resolved once it starts to happen, unless things start to really fracture. Yeah. I mean, it gets resolved because it becomes so painful um, that individuals on both sides recognize that they have to reach across the aisle and get something done. And, you know, things have gotten done. Uh, I, I will give both sides a lot of credit for the immediate economic response to the pandemic where the United States has been one of the strongest. And that was Pelosi with the, you know, support of her party and Mnuchin with the support of his president uh, talking, you know, dozens of times a day and getting a stimulus package done very quickly of immense scale that actually kept America functioning for four or five months. And that, that's a pretty, that's not a stupid thing. That's a pretty big deal, actually. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, although the debt will increase, it seems like it's something we're able to handle as an economy. It, does, it doesn't really seem, the people I've talked to are, are both economists and Federal Reserve people and government officials, nobody seems to think the levels have been inappropriate given the, the situation. Not in the US or, or anywhere. I mean, you, that's something you worry about when you come out of the crisis, but certainly that's not a concern right now. And I, I think, by the way, every Democrat, senior, senior Democrat I talk to thinks Jay Powell has done a fantastic job. Trub appointee, Fed chairman, Jay Powell. Nobody is criticizing him that understands right. economics right now. Right. Well, Ian, this has been, this has been so, I feel like I just got a complete state of the world uh, in one hour. This, we, we, we covered most of the major issues on the planet. I'm not sure if we came to any conclusions, but we got, we got information. That was pretty cool. I'm beat, but that was fun. I hope we'll do it again. Yeah, definitely. Well, well, let's see where things are at. Like in a couple of months. And if we're talking about the red country and the blue country that and the new laws, that might be one issue. And hopefully we won't be talking about that. God forbid. Okay. Right. Well, thanks so much, Ian. And uh, Ian Bremer, uh, where do you want people to find you? Uh, they should uh, check out our podcast, uh, G Zero World at G Zero Media dot com. By the way, I really like that G Zero site. I didn't. I knew you from Eurasia. I didn't really. I, I hadn't been following. I didn't really know that this 
there's a lot of great content on G0. Yeah, we set up this media company about three years ago. We've got about 6 million followers around the world total. And uh, it's been pretty cool. If you want to understand the world and uh, you want it to be authentic uh, and not left or right and not American, uh, just like kind of what we all globally think about what the hell's going on. It's kind of fun and occasionally it's a little funny. And I would say it's not just like this conversation. I felt it was it, it's not left or right. Like. I feel like we had a very balanced conversation. I feel the website's very balanced and doesn't doesn't bog down in any uh, political side. And uh, uh, it's very useful for that because you don't really find a lot of media sources that are, are balanced anymore. Well, I'm glad you think that way, man. I really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's, it's, it shows that we're doing something worthwhile. And that's... Uh... It's certainly, I'm, I'm not doing that for the money, right? <laughs> it's just it's just kind of a passion. It's fun. Yeah, it's very hard to do things for the money these days anyway. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're like... Jeff Bezos. So, all right. Well, thanks so much, Ian. Come on again. Good. Great talk to you, man. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.